Well, hey, everybody, I know I say it each week, but whether you're here in the room or joining us online, it really is great uh, to gather with you today. And we finally reached the end of a series that I've called Castaway. And as many of you know, it's based on a project that I was given many moons ago when I was assigned to develop a framework of how I might respond if I found myself stranded on a deserted island with someone who asked me how I came to believe in both God and Jesus. And, and for that assignment, I identified a series of steps that someone might take when considering the evidence for the Christian faith. And my idea was simply that after agreeing that any given step was reasonable, someone might find the confidence to take the next step and eventually find themselves asking what they actually believed themselves about Jesus. And so now by way of review and for the benefit of those of you who are joining us for the first time, here are sort of the steps that we've already covered. Uh, in week one, I presented pretty compelling evidence that there's a designer behind all the design that we see in our world. And moreover, given that evidence, well, it actually takes a lot of faith not to believe in a creator. It, it really does. And in fact, a whole bunch of you have mentioned to me how that talk in particular sparked a bunch of fascinating conversations with spiritually skeptical people in your lives, which from my perspective is exactly what I was hoping would happen. And by the way, if you missed that talk or any of the others in the series, you can catch up on our website. Uh, anyway, in week two of our series, uh, I made the somewhat obvious observation that if there is a creator, then something has gone wrong, like really wrong. I noted that it's almost like at a very deep level, something's wrong both in our world and in us. I, in an honest moment, all of us would have to admit that we don't always do the things that we know we should do. And then we've all done things that we later come to regret, things that honestly felt right in the moment, but later brought pain, both into our lives and into the lives of people that we love. Well, the authors of the Bible, both the New Testament and the Old Testament, repeatedly use the word sin to describe those decisions that take our relationships and, and actually take our world in the wrong direction. Moreover, they affirm that whenever someone sins, it creates a sort of relational debt, both with whomever it was that our sinful choices harmed, but also, as it turns out, with the Creator. And that's where we landed in the second week of our series. Then, then in weeks three and four, uh, we discussed how I'm convinced that the Creator made contact with humanity. Uh, and that when he did, he actually affirmed that we aren't here by accident, that something has gone terribly wrong, and now all people everywhere are in debt to him. Uh, but he also communicated a way for people to pay off their debt with him, a way that also demonstrated his commitment to and love for all people everywhere. In fact, a pastor by the name of Paul celebrated this reality in a letter to early Christians living in Greece. Uh, he said it this way. He wrote, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Jesus and through Jesus to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or in heaven by making, and here's the word, peace through his blood shed on the cross. In other words, when Jesus died on the cross, he justified or satisfied or paid off the debt for all sin and for all time. And now on the other side of the cross, all people everywhere are invited to accept the gift of grace that is given to us as demonstrated by Jesus on the cross and to enter a new sort of relationship with God, one that's not dependent on our faithfulness to him, 
but rather one that is solely dependent on his faithfulness to us. And that was the conclusion of week four, as well as the conclusion of our discussion of what the creator has done for us. Uh, well, then in weeks five and six, we discussed what the creator wants to do through us and in us. Uh, that after receiving the gift of his grace, he desires to leverage the lives of followers of Jesus, people like you and me, to demonstrate a new and better way to be a human right here, right now in the midst of this broken world. A way that more reflects what he had in mind in the beginning, a way of like self-sacrificing love that follows the example of our self-sacrificing creator, a way that can and has made a powerful and observable difference in our world today. And, and moreover, the good news is he wants to actually empower us to live this new sort of life from the inside out by sending us the Holy Spirit to prompt us and to guide us and to lead us as we follow the example of Jesus. All of which brings us to our conversation for today. Because at this point in my hypothetical conversation with the guy on the deserted island, I'd imagine that he'd say something like, wow. I mean, if all that is true, and it's certainly possible and even reasonable for it to be true, then I'm curious um, as to how you came to peace, or at least peace enough, with all the doubts and questions that surround your tradition to actually become a Christian, to cross that line faith. He'd go on and say something like, well, let's be honest, there are all sorts of questions pertaining to the Christian worldview that don't really seem like they have great answers. I've had conversations with friends, and they just kind of eventually shrug their shoulders. Questions like, why doesn't God seem to answer my prayers? And uh, why do bad things happen to good people? And uh, did God really flood the entire earth? And uh, this one is, this is one is divided people for generations. Did Adam and Eve have belly buttons, right? I know, you've thought about, maybe it's just me. Okay, um, and were the seven days of creation literal 24-hour days? And do I ultimately have to choose between science and faith? And so if my fellow castaway were to ask that question, um, I'd smile and say something like, you know, interesting that you should bring that up um, because there's one more thing that we really need to talk about. And for me, it's the one thing that changes everything. Because it's the one thing that has the power to do an end run around all of the very legitimate questions you raised, even the belly button one, okay? In fact, it's the one thing that allowed me years ago to pick up the questions and doubts that I still have and carry them with me across the line of faith in Jesus. And in the end, it's the one thing that's actually the most compelling evidence of all that there is a creator who not only made contact, but who desires to be in a restored relationship with the people he made, that is to say, all people. Uh, as it turns out, this one thing is the reason you've heard of Jesus. Uh, the one thing is the reason there's a church. The one thing is there's a reason there's a Bible. And that one thing is, if you haven't already caught it, the literal historical resurrection of Jesus. Now here's why I find that so compelling. Uh, you may have never thought about it, but when Jesus died on a Roman cross 2,000 years ago, all of his closest followers, those guys that you maybe have heard of, Peter, Andrew, James, John, they all unfollowed him. They, they, they broke away from Jesus. And you see, because they believed that when Jesus died, his movement died too. And there's a really good reason why they thought that. I mean, see, Jesus hadn't just taught ideas. He'd actually made some incredible claims about himself, claims which they believed had been undeniably invalidated by his death. Uh, for example, Jesus claimed to be the long-awaited Jewish Messiah. 
and that, that his disciples were convinced that God had sent to lead Israel out of the systemic oppression and suffocating taxation that they were receiving at the hand of the Roman Empire, to lead them out of that and to lead them into like a new era of prominence and freedom and prosperity on the world stage. But that's not all that Jesus had claimed because at other times Jesus had also said that he was the son of God in a very unique way. And the resurrection and the life and the savior of the world. And it just seemed obvious to them that you shouldn't be able to crucify the resurrection and the life. And you can't be the savior of the world if you're not breathing. I mean, from the perspective of those first disciples, like everything had changed in a few days time. I mean, I mean, Jesus had entered Jerusalem like less than a week before his death, riding on a donkey and, and many Jewish people lined the streets, waving palm branches. And that day, Jesus had seemed unstoppable. His future seemed certain, but like soon thereafter, everything had changed. I mean, Jesus had been betrayed by one of his closest friends. He was arrested. He was falsely accused. He was tried. He was convicted, and in short order, he was sentenced to die on a Roman cross. And then when he died, his followers, who three years earlier had left everything to follow him, ran for their lives and went into hiding. To, to be clear, when Jesus died, nobody believed anything about him. I mean, they had hoped, they had thought they had believed, but see, when he died, they understood it was game over. And in that moment, and this is key, nobody planned to write anything about Jesus, like ever. Maybe a small footnote in the history of the nation of Israel. But see, now, because of what happened a few days later, we actually do know what happened next. In his account of the life of Jesus, an early Christian by the name of Luke tells us that a man named Joseph of Arimathea approached the Roman authorities who agreed to let him take Jesus' body off the cross. He, he probably bribed them. And to give Jesus' body a proper burial. Historians tell us that had that not happened, Jesus' body would likely have been disposed of in the city dump. But instead, Luke tells us this. He says, Joseph took Jesus' body down wrapped it in a linen cloth and placed it in a tomb cut in the rock, one in which no one had yet been laid. He goes on to say, the women who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed Joseph and saw the tomb and how his body was laid in it. Then, says, they went home and prepared spices and perfumes. And this is really funny, and I'll tell you why in a second. But they rested on the Sabbath, that's on Saturday, in obedience to the commandment. Now, I love that after watching Joseph embalm Jesus' body and place it in this tomb, the women went home and immediately began to prepare spices and perfumes to re-embalm Jesus' body after the Sabbath. Apparently, they were convinced that Joseph hadn't done it right. <laughs> Which makes sense because he's a guy, right? And so that's probably fair. Uh, nonetheless, notice that in this moment, everyone expected Jesus to stay dead. I mean, like, in this moment, there were no Christians, there was no church, there was no hope. There were only brokenhearted disciples who were also disillusioned and afraid for their lives. I mean, Rome was still in control, the Jewish temple establishment was still corrupt, and the Jesus movement had been functionally crushed out of existence. You have to understand, if this is where the story ended, you never would have heard of Jesus. 
and you would have never read a Bible because there wouldn't be a Bible. But, but as you already know, that's not where the story ends because a few days later, something nobody was expecting happened. And Luke described it this way. He says, on the first day of the week, that's Sunday, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. He goes on. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And as Luke's account continues, he tells us that the women are soon confronted by two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning, who, after allowing them time to change their undergarments, <laughs> you just read the Bible, you're like, can you place yourself in that moment? Wow. So after they had some time, um, asked the women a question, why do you look for the living among the dead? He's not here. He's risen. In other words, you thought this was the end of Jesus' story, but this is actually where things start to get interesting. Well, in response to the news that, that what had happened, you know, the women quickly locate Jesus' first disciples and they tell them what they just experienced. And Luke records that the response of these first disciples to this news was underwhelming. <laughs> Here's how he said it. He says, one of the guys, Peter, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away, wondering to himself what had happened. In other words, uh, you know, Pedro, dude, the ladies told you what happened, gleaming lightning. And he's like, yeah, no. <laughs> it's like Peter sees the empty tomb where the body of Jesus was supposed to be but wasn't and walks away with a lot of questions. And here's why I find that so compelling. I mean, think about this. The first followers of Jesus documented their disbelief. Like, in other words, when they first heard about the resurrection of Jesus, they doubted it was true. And that's a big deal. Because if they wanted to fabricate a story about a resurrection in order to keep the Jesus movement alive, they would never have written themselves into the story as having lost their faith. But see, the disciples actually chronicled their cowardice. They recorded that when Jesus was arrested, they ran. And when the reports of a resurrection surfaced, they doubted. And that's simply not what you would do if you were trying to make up a story that set you up to lead a movement. Honestly, Jesus' first disciples had no idea what to do until they came face to face with a Jesus who was very much alive. And a few weeks after that happened, they hit the streets of Jerusalem, the same city where Jesus had been tried, arrested, and crucified. And when they hit those streets, they were fearless. It's interesting to note um, that when they hit the streets, they weren't reteaching what Jesus taught. They weren't like retelling the Sermon on the Mount, or they weren't retelling the parable of the prodigal son. Everybody loves that one, right? Instead, they were confronting some of the same people who had demanded that Jesus be crucified in order to make them aware of the stunning reality that, as Peter put it, God raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. In other words, we didn't just read about Jesus' resurrection, and nobody told us about Jesus' resurrection. We actually saw Jesus raised from the dead, alive again, with our own eyes. And the thing that's so stunning about this to me is how quickly Jesus' disciples re-engaged in his mission like they had unfollowed Jesus and then they un-unfollowed Jesus, right? They were back more 
than ever. And, and it's incredibly compelling evidence that the resurrection actually happened, like not metaphorically, literally in real space and in real time. In fact, that airtight conviction that Jesus had risen from the grave catapulted those first disciples out of hiding and gave them incredible courage Courage enough to confront the people who had just put Jesus to death. And eventually, courage enough to carry the message of what Jesus had accomplished to the world. They gave their lives so people would know about what God had done. And if you think about it, like, it's almost inconceivable that the message of Jesus made it out of the first century. I mean, it was receiving incredible pressure from both the Jewish religious establishment that wanted it stopped in its tracks and the Roman Empire who was trying to maintain order around the worship of the Roman emperor as God and Christians wouldn't bend the knee. They were a threat. And so Christianity emerges as a force to be reckoned with the latter half of the first century during a time when everything was stacked against it. And again, it wasn't the significance of what Jesus said that gave the disciples the courage to carry this message into such a hostile environment, even though Jesus had said some really significant things. And it wasn't the significance of what Jesus did, even though Jesus had done, undeniably, some very significant things. It was, as I like to call it, and if you've been around here at all, you've heard me say it, the unbelievable yet undeniable reality that Jesus literally physically rose from the dead. And when you're confronted with something that's unbelievable, yet undeniable, honestly, undeniable, Trump's unbelievable every single time. The evidence was overwhelming. In fact, many scholars argue that the resurrection is really the only reasonable explanation for the survival of the church in the first century. It was the truth that stood right at the center of the Jesus movement. In fact, a few years back, I came upon the writings of a man named Gary Habermas. He's a prominent New Testament scholar who I enjoy reading, so you don't have to. Um, and in a book called The Resurrection of Jesus, A Rational Inquiry, which I was really excited when I got it from Amazon. And again, you probably wouldn't, but I'll summarize it for you. Here's what Gary tells us. He says, the resurrection was undoubtedly the central proclamation of the early church from the very beginning. He says, the earliest Christians didn't just endorse Jesus' teachings. They were convinced they had seen him alive after his crucifixion. That's what changed their lives, started the church. Certainly, since this was their centermost conviction, they would have made absolutely sure that it was true. Unbelievable yet undeniable. The reality is that when those who knew Jesus best saw him alive again, everything changed and they felt undeniably compelled to tell the world. And they did. And eventually they wrote down what they had experienced and their testimony was passed on from generation to generation. And it's the same testimony that you can hold in your hands today. So back on the beach, at this point in my conversation with my fellow castaway, I would say something like, the literal 
historical resurrection of Jesus is the strongest evidence imaginable for the existence of a creator. A creator who loved the people he created enough to allow them to turn away from him in sin. And a creator who still loved the people enough after they had broken relationship with him in sin to make a way back. To make a way back to a restored relationship. To make a way back to a renewed planet. And to make their way back to a hope in a life after death. A life after this life lived in intimate relationship with him. In fact, it's evidence strong enough to allow us to pick up our doubts and unanswerable questions, as valid as they may be, and to carry them across the line of faith in Jesus. And now to me, the only reasonable response to all of this evidence is to surrender my life to surrender my story to the much bigger, much better story that God is telling in our world. It's a story that, that spans thousands of years and reaches across our planet. It's a story that's big enough to hold my dreams and my fears and my passions and my doubts and my questions. It's a story that if I'm honest, and then I could speak for a lot of us in this room, it's the story for which we were made. And that reality fills me with wonder. And I would say to the guy on the beach, I can only hope that you one day find that same wonder because the God who made you And if you're here this morning and and you've never crossed the line of faith in Jesus, hear this, the God who made you, the God who made you loves you more than you can imagine and is waiting for you to accept the free gift of his grace. A gift that will not only bring you peace with him, but bring you a home with him in the life that comes after this life. So I just need to ask you, Who do you believe Jesus to be? Who is Jesus? I'm convinced that this is the single most important question any of us can ask and answer in this life. What I want to do uh, to close our time is to give you a little bit of space to sort of wrestle with that question. Um, If you're here and you're a Christian, maybe just open yourself up once again to wonder. And so as we close down the series, um, I want to listen to a song that it's been around for like six, seven, eight years. And every time I hear it, it brings me to tears because once again, it brings me to wonder It captures something about the gospel, the good news of what Jesus has accomplished. And it confronts us with this overwhelming love of a creator, a love that almost feels too good to be true, unbelievable, undeniable. And it reminds us that on the cross, Jesus gave his life so that we might find 
the life that we were made to live. Let's listen to this together.
Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for moments like this when we can be overwhelmed with thankfulness for the grace that we've been shown, a grace that we did not deserve, that we could not earn, but a grace that launched your church, a grace that changed the world, and a grace that has changed lives. For many of us uh, in this room, this is one of the truths to which we tie off in a world that is constantly moving in all sorts of other directions. That on this truth we stand. But I also think of friends that are either here or maybe watched, watching online and, and you've never had a moment where you accepted the gift. And if that's you, I just, I, I pray that God, you would give them courage to look up, to open their hands and to receive. That they too might have an encounter with your grace that changes everything. We thank you for the gospel, the message of what you have accomplished that continues to move into our world and bring people freedom. Thank you for entrusting broken people like us with that message. But I pray that your kingdom would continue to come as we work to make things a little more like you want them to be. And that the light of Jesus would shine forth from our lives and from this place in a way that is so compelling that our neighbors who have never heard of you might come to know you. But we thank you for today. We thank you for grace. Most of all, we thank you for your one and only son who you sent among us to do what only he could do. It's in the matchless name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Everyone said, amen. Grace and peace to you, friends.